Welcome to Cross and Crown Radio. I am your host, Jason Garwood, and with me is a special guest today, Dr. Robert Fugate. I'm excited to have him join us uh, for this special interview on a very important topic. Uh, Dr. Fugate, thank you so much for being with us. It's an honor to be with you today, Jason. Thank you so much for carving out some time in your in your uh, busy schedule. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, you and I have uh, an interesting how God brings people together. Uh, I was commenting uh, before the interview here that I had purchased several of your books years ago, uh, many years ago, when I was first exposed to this grand biblical worldview. And so I, I, I feel like I've known you at least, you know, through that medium and uh, just Really appreciate the work you've put into these things, and especially your latest book, which is mostly what we're going to talk about today, Tyrants Are Not Ministers of God, and the subtitle is What the Bible Teaches About Civil Disobedience, Romans 13, and Quarantine. And uh, interestingly enough, our paths crossed uh, because uh, both of us came to the same conclusion about quarantine, which was very fascinating and interesting to me. (laughs) So we had some exchanges over email and uh, it's a blessing to to know that I I'm not crazy, <laughs> that there are other people out there who 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 think similar things. But well, we both are. Yeah, well, yeah, that, we're that both could... crazy or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I had read your uh, document that you'd written there, that Warrington Declaration, and uh, that was the best of the documents like that that I've seen by far. And I was that's one reason I contacted you. I just I wanted to touch base again because we were on the same page with so much of that. Yeah, well, praise God. That was that was a work of love with several several folks' involvement, and it's neat to see how how far it's gotten. A lot of a lot of signatures, a lot of reach, and yeah, unfortunately, I don't think that issue is going to go away. So we're going to need to probably make sure we have that squared away um, in the future for sure. Well, I just want to read a little bit of your bio, Doctor Fugate, just so people get an understanding of, of who you are. Robert Fugate is an author, pastor, and theological mentor. He earned a PhD in Christian Intellectual Studies and an MD, both from Whitfield Theological Seminary. Doctor Fugate has written over twenty books and booklets that have been used by pastors and church leaders in over sixty countries. I'm going to highlight the ones that I have and I read years ago. One of them was Key Principles of Biblical Civil Government. Uh, proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus Christ over the nations. You've written books like Biblical Patriarchy, God's Mandate for Biblical Education. Uh, I was studying the Ten Commandments, and I grabbed your God's Royal Law, Foundation of Moral Order. And uh, you have a book also toward a theology of taxation, uh, which I, I've only thumbed through. Uh, I can only read so much. But I <laughs> I really have uh, loved loved your effort in trying to deal with biblical issues and worldview issues. Uh, so, uh, further reading from your, your bio for our listeners so they know a little bit more about you. His book, The Bible, God's Words to You, is nearly a nearly 900-page treatment of the doctrine of Scripture. It may be the only comprehensive text on bibliology written from a presuppositional-slash-biblical worldview perspective. Dr. Fugate's materials are available at lordofthenations.com and thebookpatch.com. Dr. Fugate co-authored the position paper, Sanctity of Human Life, for the International Church Council Project slash Coalition on Revival, as well as being a major contributor to their position papers, God's Law for All Societies, Education of Christian Children, and the Biblical Perspective of Environmental Stewardship. Dr. Fugate mentors pastors, pastoral or missionary candidates, and young adults in biblical worldview, presuppositional apologetics, and systematic theology. Dr. Fugate's website, I mentioned, lordofthenations.com. 
And most importantly, Robert, uh, his late, late wife, what was her name again? Her name is Vani. Vani. V-O-N-N-E. Vani, yes. Uh, Robert and his late wife, Vani, homeschooled their four children and have 13 grandchildren. You got a lot to keep track of. Well, the number keeps growing. Yeah. <laughs> we thank God for his many blessings. So that's, for our listeners, that's just a little bit about Dr. Uh, Fugate and some of his work. And I want to, I really want to just jump into to our discussion here. And, and I have several questions that I've laid out. I read your book, your latest book. Uh, but before we get into that, tell our listeners a little bit about your story and background. Wh- where are you from? Uh, did you grow up in the church? When did, when did Christ apprehend your heart? And, uh, Certainly, I want to know, when did the comprehensive nature of the kingdom of God grip you? Well, I've lived most of my life in Nebraska. Uh, of course, you raised in Nebraska, you're going to support the Nebraska Cornhuskers. But I was raised in a partially Christian home. My mother was a very young Christian uh, when I was born. My father was not saved until I was probably in my 20s or 30s. God graciously saved me when I was in the second or third grade, regularly attending a Baptist church with my mother. However, it was uh, my, my freshman year of college when I began to experience more of the reality of the Holy Spirit operating in my life. I felt God's call my life uh, for ministry, so I majored in both New Testament studies and in systematic theology, and eventually uh, entered the pastorate, pastoring two churches for 20 years. I was always inclined toward biblical study and research. So during those first few years of pastoring, I changed my theology from Arminianism to the Reformed faith. It was about 1984 that God revolutionized my thinking when I was able to hear uh, Reverend uh, R.J. Rushdie speak on the subject of the lordship of Jesus Christ over all culture. I was in a little church in a neighboring town called Louisville, Nebraska. That had become the center of a national controversy for refusing to submit to state tyranny in the matter of state licensure and control of their church school. The Lord used this incident where Dr. Rushton, he was speaking uh, to uh, birth in me an understanding of the comprehensiveness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom. So I began devouring the teachings of R.J. Rushton and Greg Bonson, and I've never been the same. Wow, that's that's wonderful. Yeah, I, I, I'm only slightly familiar with that controversy. I know there was quite a bit about it with regard to the relationship of state and and uh, the involvement with the church and church schools. So it's interesting that, that you were involved there, and that's how you kind of adopted this worldview. What, what, a, what a blessing. Yes. Well, I'm so grateful for God, Dr. Rushton for going to support places that were being persecuted uh, by so many churches, and particularly church schools, things like that, at the, for so many years. And as he became an expert court witness and various things like that, and he gave a lot of his time to do that kind of thing. But the fact he came to Nebraska is what introduced me to that. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Well, I, I, I want to a little bit talk about some of your books. You've written several books. I noted many of them uh, just previously. But when did you start your ministry, uh, Lord of the Nations? And I'm really curious, what was the first book you ever wrote? I formed Lord of the Nations LLC in uh, 2011, but I actually wrote my first book, which dealt with the doctrine of revelation, 20 years earlier in 1991. In God's providence, 
he orchestrated having that book printed and distributed by Operation Mobilization. They had on their ships and they distributed across coastal cities throughout Africa and throughout Asia. Then another missions organization distributed it in Zambia. So that was my introduction to uh, Christian publishing. And it was totally God's doing, uh, not mine. And I'm not even a good marketer at all. <laughs> my, my first book, uh, Delving into the Area of Biblical Worldview, as you mentioned, was that Key Principles of Biblical Civil Government, Proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus Christ Over the Nations. And that was published in 2007. In that same year, the Spanish edition was printed and distributed in Latin American by a Latin American missions group. And uh, so that re- got into quite a few countries through that. And, and uh, it's been actually the interest has been growing in that area in Latin America. Uh, head of that one missions agency has commented to me a couple of years ago that uh, you're just seeing more and more of an interest and desire for biblical teaching on the area of civil government and economics in uh, Latin American countries now. And of course, they didn't have the Reformation base that uh, we did. And so uh, it's so important to get those materials into countries like that. And there's often so much more openness and receptivity and just hunger for that type of material in other countries than there is here in the United States. Uh, let's see, you mentioned uh, uh, that my book, uh, Toward a Theology of Taxation, and there's, I don't know of anything that's like it at all, that people, Christians don't write on that stuff. But I wrote that two years later that after that uh, initial book on key bib- principles of biblical civil government. But one interesting thing about that theology of taxation, it has an appendix in that book where I critiqued the uh, James Jordan, Gary North refutation of R.J. Rushton and his view of the head tax. Uh, Calcedon published my analysis of that debate in their magazine, Faith for All of Life, in 2012. At that time, it was the only written defense of R.J. Rushton and his view of the head tax against Jordan's refutation. But as these books illustrate, and the ones, books you've already mentioned, my passion and emphasis in writing is biblical worldview. Over the years, I've known many pastors and theologians who are orthodox in their theology, such as holding to the inerrancy of Scripture, many holding to historic Reformed confessions. But their worldview was pathetic. Mm. Of course, it goes on without saying that you know orthodox theology is essential. That's why I wrote, like you mentioned, that 900-page, almost hardback book on the doctrine of uh, Scripture, Reformed doctrine of Scripture from a presuppositional perspective. But, Jason, we, we both witnessed many Christians losing their government-educated children to the world. A few Presbyterian or Reformed churches that ardently defended the, such practices have become churches filled with elderly people that have almost no children in them at all, some that I'm aware of. Others went the direction of entertainment-oriented church programs so the kids wouldn't leave. More recently, we're witnessing conservative Presbyterian churches becoming more tolerant of homosexuality, and certainly the same is true with evangelicalism as a whole. Some are even adopting the racist wokeism fad. So we must realize that orthodox theology is not enough. We must know and live according to the biblical worldview. That's why I think perhaps my most important contribution is the book, The Foundation and Pillars of the Biblical Worldview. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I think, I think you're absolutely right in that regard. I mean, we, we definitely need to recapture these principles from Scripture so that the church can wake up and and stop adopting uh, the world's world's principles, the world's standards. You, uh, you mentioned some of your work getting out in places like Zambia, which I've been a few times. Lord willing, I'll go back. And and uh, I've also made some connections in Brazil with some some brothers who are trying to produce. A lot of content and using some of my books have been translated. There's 
a lot of uh, sort of like a mini Reformation revival going on there where people are very interested in how the Bible speaks to these other areas of life. Because for, for many, many years, pe- people have not been addressing those issues, uh, whether it's taxation or any of those worldview issues, education, we, we really do need to uh, pummel the market with this type of material. So I'm, I'm grateful that yes. that's really what your your effort has been on. And, and I assume that that's really what the aim of Lord of the Nations, right? That's what you're attempting to do. You're hoping to communicate the biblical worldview. Uh, any, anything you want to add in that regard with what your ministry is intended to uh, communicate? Yeah, and uh, I, I have a group there in Brazil as well. It's been translating a couple of my works and uh, some in Hungary and other places too. So praise the Lord for that hunger in so many countries, in third world countries and Far East and Africa and so forth. Yeah, the mission statement of Lord of the Nations is teaching the biblical worldview through applying God's infallible and sufficient written word to all areas of life, thought, and culture, taking captive every thought to, to make it obedient to Jesus Christ, who's Lord of all. So we're all about developing teaching materials based on biblical worldview. And so we've got books in the areas, many topics, areas of uh, law, God's law, civil government, family, education, psychology, theology, philosophy, culture, spiritual warfare, something reform people don't write much about, uh, and uh, many other topics as well. Yeah, wonderful. Wonderful. That's that's great. Let's let's shift gears a little bit, uh, Doctor Fugate, because I really want to tackle this book, your latest project. Tyrants are not ministers of God. You're taking what you just said with your mission statement and you're applying it on the front cover. It's a red book. It has a, a imagery of what we perceive a virus to to look like and kind of a popular <laughs> popular illustration there. But what the Bible teaches about civil disobedience, Romans 13 and quarantine. I I read through this pretty pretty quickly in just a couple of days, just digesting it. And it's heavily footnoted for those who are listening, uh, well over 300 footnotes, almost 400 footnotes. Uh, you did a lot of research for it. But I guess the first question is, well, what prompted you to write the book? Why did you even think that it was necessary to write something like this? Well, like you, I was gravely concerned with the Christian leaders and churches' responses to the COVID tyranny. It's a classic example of why it's imperative for Christians to know and to apply the biblical worldview to culture. Overall, the response was, trust and obey the government, for there's no other way to be happy. Uh, To me, it's reminiscent of the mindset of 90% of evangelical churches in Germany that supported Adolf Hitler. Yeah, that's, I, I think you're absolutely right. We both, uh, early on, I, I was very frustrated with what I was witnessing and seeing. And uh, I think all of us kind of first were caught off guard trying to figure out, all right, two weeks to flatten the curve. Uh, okay, well, we'll just stay home and figure this out. And then, you know, things shifted quickly. The narrative changed and we were sold a bill of goods for sure. And you know, looking at this particular issue is definitely one of those things that Christians have have ignored. I think that's why we were caught flat-footed in many regards. Uh, we didn't have things that, like with the Warrington Declaration, uh, a lot of that theological uh, conviction really wasn't there. We just didn't know what to do because we weren't prepared for it, and that's because we haven't sought to apply the biblical worldview to every area of life. And that's kind of, I mentioned this to you, I think, personally, but after writing Outside the Camp, that was mostly just on Leviticus, which we're going to get to, but before that I had written Health for All of Life and, and uh, 
grateful for Martin Salbridi's forward for the book and, and, and some of the work that it's, you know, the, the places it's been able to go. It's uh, almost, the trans, Spanish translation is almost finished. We're going to have that on, on Amazon and in other places available. But I wanted to take the issue of health and the biblical worldview and pull those things together. And that happened, ironically, right before the, the whole COVID thing took place. <laughs> so I was starting research in the fall of 2019 and then started writing basically right after Christmas and New Year's. And all of a sudden this stuff happened. So by God's providence, I, you know, for whatever reason, this was the timing of it all was there. Um, and so I, I, I'm very sympathetic to your concerns, especially uh, with the church's poor response, a, a lack of an intelligent response, uh, a lot of divisive attitudes towards what it means to love your neighbor and so on. So I, you know, I'm grateful for your work. Now, the, the first section of the book, it was a great interest for me because I, too, I share that desire. Uh, we need to have a, a proper perspective on the relationship between the gospel and politics. So that's where you start with the book. And the question is, really two questions, but from your point of view, why is it important not to separate those two things? So why is it important not to separate gospel and politics? And why do you think Christians do separate them in that way? What, what would you say? Let me suggest three reasons. Uh, the first being historical, uh, cultural context of the biblical world. Uh, the modern Western notion of separating politics and religion is completely foreign to the biblical world. For instance, in first century Roman Empire, the very term gospel was used to describe the good news of Caesar's rule as king, savior, high priest, and benefactor a rule producing justice and peace. All of these terms were political terms. The term Christ and Lord were also highly politicized terms in first century Rome. Consequently, erecting a wall between gospel and politics is totally foreign to the writers of Scripture, and it fosters a misreading of Scripture. And a second reason uh, that I would suggest is that it basically, it would concern the nature of the gospel itself. If we ask the question, what gospel did John the Baptizer or the Lord Jesus Christ or the apostles preach? The answer, of course, is they preached the gospel of the kingdom. What's the kingdom of God? Let me quote from uh, George Ellen Ladd, who wrote a number of books on the, on the kingdom of God. In the New Testament, the kingdom of God is the reign of God in Christ, destroying all that is hostile to the divine rule. And he mentions 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 23, 28. I would add Acts 2 and Peter's sermon and so forth. But simply stated, Christ's kingdom is his sovereign dominion, his empire. All of this has political overtones and implications. When the early church preached the gospel of the kingdom in the power of the Spirit, their opponents conceded that they had turned the world upside down by acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king. Jesus, Acts 17. The New Testament gospel declared Jesus is Lord. I mean, Caesar's not. So it's impossible to separate the gospel of King Jesus from politics. Contemporary Christians attempting to do this bifurcation are preaching a truncated, neutered gospel. Then a third reason concerns the Great Commission. On the basis of the historical fact that all authority has been given to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, all authority in heaven and on earth, 
he commissioned the church to disciple the nations, Matthew 28. What most Christians overlook is that one aspect of every nation is civil government with its system of laws and justice, economics, military, etc. So if we're going to disciple nations, it must include these aspects, as well as other aspects of what constitutes a nation. To state it differently, the Great Commission is a republication of the cultural mandate within the context of the covenant of grace. The cultural mandate, of course, referring to Genesis 1.28. Thus, it's impossible to separate the Great Commission or idea of world missions from politics. We could even say that the area of politics, that is, I'm, when I'm using politics, I'm just talking about civil government, uh, that that is, in fact, a gospel issue. It is a gospel issue in the sense that it is included in the full-orbed, nation-discipling gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ's sovereignty or his dominion, his kingdom, his reign. It's not a gospel issue in the sense that unless a person has clear understanding of all the political implications of the gospel, he or she cannot be saved. I'm not saying that. But then the second part of your question, I think, was something about uh, why do Christians separate the gospel and politics? I would suggest it's because of bad theology and the lack of the biblical worldview. When I say bad theology, I'm thinking of systems of theology that either compartmentalize or spiritualize scripture, such as dispensationalism, Lutheran two-kingdom theology, which is now promoted by many amillennial Presbyterians, what's sometimes called New Covenant theology, as well as pietism. Each of these is rooted in a pagan spirit-matter dualism, which is foreign to the scriptures. Yeah, that's, that's a great response. It's as simple as Jesus Christ is Lord. And what do we mean by that? Uh, it doesn't really get much much more political than that <laughs> in, claiming, yes. in, in claiming the totality of his rule and his reign. And, and uh, I, I very much appreciate your, your comment there toward the end about this pagan, which is you're, you're referencing the format or dualistic dialectic of Greek metaphysics. And much of theology has been influenced by that. You know, the, yes. the nature-grace distinction, something uh, Dewey Verd critiqued and certainly uh, uh, Francis Schaeffer as well. Uh, and Rush Dooney, and, and, and you today, uh, dealing with that issue of this bifurcated worldview where uh, nature is just what we have here, all the hard sciences, all the, even the humanities, all those things are just in that realm. But upstairs, that's the grace area. And I, I think that's a major problem. And so your assessment, I think, is incredibly valid. Yes. By the, the way, I'm sorry, by the way, there is a uh, uh, little pamphlet people can download free on my website, lordofthenations.com, on uh, Pietism. It's a critique of that. Uh, so they might, if they're not familiar with Pietism, they, or they may want to share it with others. So download that free uh, article there. Oh, wonderful! That's a great resource. Definitely, listeners, check that out. I, I, it's yeah. I, I think that's probably the foremost, almost like the the heading of it all. <laughs> pietism that's driven by whether it's those false dialectics or whatever those uh, Greek metaphysics and those things. A pietism tends to be where many Christians have parked themselves, unfortunately. Uh, now, you talk a little bit in the book about civil disobedience, and there is a lot of talk about that today. What does civil disobedience look like? That sort of thing. What would you say? Can Christians disobey the government? Are they allowed to? You know, and and if so, in what ways 
should we do so? In what ways is it permitted for us to disregard and disobey civil authority? Well, the locus cascus verse would be, we ought to obey God rather than men, the apostles said in uh, Acts 5.29. But in my books, Tyrants Are Not Ministers of God, I suggest 13 distinct situational categories that allow and even mandate civil disobedience. And I give in the book there a plethora of biblical God-endorsed examples for this kind of civil disobedience. Uh, let me list some of these situational categories uh, from the book that uh, allow civil disobedience. First of all, like when we're prohibited from doing what God has commanded, or when we're commanded to do what God has prohibited. But some people just uh, mention those two, and, and that's all. But there's a lot more than that. For example, when defending the jurisdictions of the covenantal institutions of the family of the church, often then we have to have civil disobedience. Or also when interposition is needed, whether private or familial or ecclesiastical or civil interposition. Uh, another aspect, or another example there is the uh, when a civil magistrate gives a biblically unlawful order that hinders your calling, like he did to the apostles there, don't preach the gospel, or he tells, uh, don't sing in church in our day, things like that. Uh, when God commands people to flee persecution. There are many, many examples from cover to cover in Scripture where God did instruct his people to flee persecution for various reasons, but usually so they could minister somewhere else that would be receptive to the gospel uh, uh, or else for a tactical uh, retreat to uh, to then, uh, you know, be uh, you know, come back later uh, in a stronger way. And, of course, the uh, Reformers were showing examples of that. Calvin, of course, fleeing to Geneva. You know, we had that with the Scottish Reformers, John Knox and others going to, Scot uh, going to Switzerland and so forth. So there's a whole history of this sort of thing and many scriptures on it. But Christians almost never teach on these sorts of things. All right, another uh, a category of allowing for civil disobedience is when a civil magistrate makes illegal something that's a fundamental God-given responsibility and therefore a right of every person. And I'm thinking here of things like the right to worship the triune God, or the right to work to provide food for one's family, or the right of self-defense. And two other situational categories are when God calls a church to become an underground church, and also when prophetic rebuke is warranted. So all of these situational categories allow for civil disobedience, and especially the first couple uh, actually mandate civil disobedience. So it is a biblical concept. Yes, that's, I think you did a great job in the book kind of laying those out. I know that's something that uh, uh, I just read a, read a book from uh, Dr. Phil Kaiser, actually, on his, his uh, I think he put out a little pamphlet on, pamphlet on that actual issue, civil disobedience. And I think that those are all right. legitimate. Other people are talking about it is the point of me bringing up Kaiser's work, because I think that's that is an area where we haven't thought critically about it. Where do we disobey? How do we disobey? What situations are, are going to be honored by God and what situations are more of a pagan revolutionary type thinking? Uh, right. So I, I yeah, really appreciate had, it. Yeah, in that book, he yeah, he mentions ways of uh, uh, forms of, of civil resistance. I didn't uh, record, repeat those in my notes. I did look at that before. And, uh, but also I mentioned some of those in my civil government book years ago as well some of those different forms that would take. Uh, but it, that, that is an extremely important area. Yeah. Yes. I, and in your comment there at the beginning of when you were sharing some of your thoughts about where Christians usually stop is 
oh, well, if they cause me to sin, and then sin is just viewed in a pietistic way. So they're not going to tell you, you know, go down, bow down to this statue, although maybe that, that could happen. Certainly Nebuchadnezzar did it, but <laughs> yes. they're not going to just force you into something like that. They could. It has happened, yes, but that's not really where we're at at this point. There are other categories for consideration that, that I think uh, are pertinent to the discussion. So, Well, pertinent, pertinent to that discussion is the fact I mentioned earlier, that I uh, kind of alluded to it, but uh, something Rushdie pointed out is really through all of human history, the state has never been re- viewed as religiously neutral. In fact, very often it's, to use Hegel's term, God walking upon the earth. So the bowing down that's required is not so much in our day to a, uh, a specific idol made out of wood, but it's very much to the God of statism. Right. Yes. Yeah. And that is our greatest, our greatest God at the moment is we've given all, the state complete control over every, every single area. And, and speaking of which, this is kind of a, uh, the perfect segue. I want to read Romans 13, just a little bit of it. And this is from the Legacy Standard Bible. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist have been appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists that government, excuse me, that authority, has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of that authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God, a a deacon, that's the Greek word there, a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword in vain. For it is a minister of God, an avenger of who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of that wrath, but also because of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. And he goes on, render... Uh, to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom, fear, honor. And so I, I read this because Romans 13, this has been a huge discussion with the Gospel Coalition people. Um, I fully expect a Gospel Coalition headline to show up that says something like, uh, the, the disinformation board is to be submitted to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because it, this v- erroneous view of Romans chapter 13, it's often quoted as a proof text for blind submission to the government. Just do whatever the government tells you. Give me, give me a response, Dr. Fugate. What is, is that even, is that a right view or a wrong view? Should we, I mean, Paul seems to say you're supposed to just obey them. Give us, give us a response to that. Well, you might notice some of that language, how it's so absolute, so universal, every soul, no authority, uh, whoever, and and et cetera, other terms like that. Uh, But logically, this absolute universal wording of Romans 13, 1 through 7, allows really for only two interpretations, because it is so absolute. Either option A, the passage demands absolute obedience on the part of all Christians to all civil magistrates all the time which we'll just call the divine right of kings theory, in which the voice of the king is, in fact, the voice of God. Or option B, the passage is prescriptive, describing how Christian or how civil magistrates ought to function as God's servants. And so looking specifically at the wording yourself, as you read there, and maybe I'll read verses three and four again, but just emphasizing a few words. Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. You will have praise from the same. 
for he is God's minister, like you said, Dakinos, servant, to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, his Dakinos, servant, and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. These verses unequivocally state that God has ordained civil magistrates to be his servants to you, that is to Christians, to the church Christ, for good. God's servants uh, praises those doing what's good, but punishes him who practices evil. The question most Christians, including most pastors teaching on Romans 13, fail to ask is who defines good and evil? Definitions are always critical. You let the enemy define terms for you, you've lost the argument. You lost the Christian faith. Do mass murders like Nero, Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong define good and evil? Does Mohammed? Jason, I'm sure you'd say, God forbid. Mm-hmm. Burning Christians as torches at orgiastic, idolatrous parties does not constitute good, contra the later Nero. God alone is the definer of good and evil. But if God is the definer of good and evil, then there's a higher standard by which to judge the actions of the civil magistrates, which is the revealed word of God. In Romans 13, the Apostle Paul describes God's civil servants as rulers who are not a terror to good works, but to evil. That's quite the opposite of the above-mentioned mass murderers. Thus, the wording of Romans 13 itself disqualifies tyrants who persecute Christians, thereby contradicting the divine right of king's interpretation. Mm-hmm. And to answer your question, Jason, we also have to consider the immediate and the larger context of these verses, uh, that is the epistle of Romans as a whole. Immediately following these verses on civil magistrates, uh, the Apostle Paul proceeds to teach that good works are defined by God's moral law in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 13 in Romans. In these verses, Paul states that biblical love keeps the Ten Commandments. He cites Commandments 6 through 10. And, of course, as you know, uh, the Ten Commandments are the summary of God's moral law. The immediate context forces us to conclude that there's a direct correlation between the God-given duty of civil magistrates to praise those doing good works and God's moral law that defines good works. And, of course, we know it also defines evil works as well. But this correlation uh, also comports with the fact that the Apostle Paul had already told the Romans that God's law is just and good. Notice those words, just and good. Romans 7, uh, verses 12, 13, and 16. Logically, since God's law is just and good, whatever contradicts or is opposed to God's law must be unjust and evil. Again, whatever contradicts or is opposed to God's law must be unjust and evil. Thus, both the immediate context and the larger context of Romans force us to conclude that Romans 13 depicts civil magistrates prescriptively as God has called them to function. It does not describe those civil magistrates who are antinomian tyrants who believe they're God. Uh, Those kind of people are described in 2 Thessalonians 2 and Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, and particularly Revelation 13. But this forces us to conclude that those civil magistrates punishing people for doing what is good and just, while rewarding people for doing what's evil and unjust, 
that these people are, these civil magistrates who do that are not ministers of God. They are tyrants. Christians are not under obligation to honor and obey the unjust dictates of tyrants. There's another line of evidence that can help us determine whether the divine right of kings option or the prescriptive interpretation of Romans 13 is correct. That's the fundamental hermeneutical principle that we should always use. That's that a specific passage must be interpreted in the light of the teaching of all of Scripture. Sometimes it's called the analogy of faith principle. Well, earlier we already talked about 13 distinct situational categories in the Scripture that allow or even mandate civil disobedience. Well, that doesn't fit the divine right of kings interpretation at all. Additionally, many passages of Scripture teach that civil laws criminalizing what God has not criminalized are, in fact, unjust. For example, a magistrate creating unjust laws, Scripture calls a throne of destruction, which devises mischief by decree. That's Psalm 94, 20. Unjust judges, we're told, don't fear God, which means that they are, quote, an abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 17, 15. Indeed, God speaks a prophetic curse on unjust magistrates in these words. It says, woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions, Isaiah 10, 1. The scripture is filled with God's prophets speaking with by God's Spirit who rebuked political leaders. Christ's apostles declared we ought to obey God rather than men. All such verses, and there are many more than that, totally contradict the divine right of kings interpretation of Romans 13. Then also there's one final line of evidence I've mentioned is uh, to help us determine whether the divine right of kings option or the prescriptive interpretation of Romans 13 is correct. That's the grammatical, historical, or sometimes called the historical, cultural, hermeneutical principle. That hermeneutical rule, the hermeneutics just means how should we properly interpret Scripture. That hermeneutical role instructs us to interpret the passage in its historical, geographical, cultural, and religious setting, asking the question, what did this mean to the people to whom it was written? Well, with regard to Romans 13, to Roman officials in the first century Roman Empire, the teaching in Romans 13, 1 through 7, was radically subversive of Caesar's claims and his rule. Romans 13 would be offensive to Roman authorities, since they're depicted as servants of the God of the Jews, even the God who revealed himself in Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, who was convicted and executed by Roman authorities for the crime of sedition. And let me give you one sample quote from a very well-known New Testament scholar along these lines. He writes, The gospel and rule of Jesus the Messiah, the world's true Lord, subverted the gospel and rule of Caesar, whose cult was fast-growing in precisely the cities like Corinth and Ephesus and so on, where Paul spent most of his time. The writer goes on to say, The rulers are not themselves divine. They are set up by the one God, and they owe this God allegiance. Romans 13 constitutes a severe demotion of arrogant and self-divinizing rulers. It is an undermining of totalitarianism, not a reinforcement 
of it. I include many such quotes in my Tyrants Are Not Ministers of God book. Thus, the historical cultural context disproves the divine right of kings theory. Since rulers' authority is delegated to them by God, they're accountable to him to rule in a manner that is consistent with God's purposes for civil government, like verses 3 and 4 of Romans 13 told us that we read, and also in accordance with God's standard of justice, his moral law. And God's purposes for civil government harmonize with his purposes for the other two God-ordained institutions, the family and the church. That leaves us with only one sound interpretation. Romans 13 is prescriptive, describing the ideal situation, telling how God's civil servants should act and how Christians should relate to such leaders. We must not allow people to unchallengingly twist Paul's teaching in Romans 13 into support for status policies, policies that would deny civil magistrates covenantal obligations to obey and implement God's laws, or status policies that would ravage the God-ordained institutions of the family and the church, or policies that would revolt in anarchy against the sovereignty, the dominion, the empire of God, mediated, uh, mediatorily ruled by his divine son, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm thinking here particularly like of Psalm 2, uh, uh, Acts chapter 2, and other passages, of course, as well. But well, Jason, <laughs> that's a lengthy answer. Yeah, but Romans one, 13 is so crucial in our contemporary situation of medical tyranny that we have to examine it in some depth. Yeah, and, and there, I appreciate the uh, reference to the analogy of Scripture because I think a lot of problems would be solved if we just simply read Scripture <laughs> yes. with itself. The whole Bible. Yes. Yeah, and and your point about Caesar, had Caesar had access to this document, it would have been furious. Uh, he would have been furious as a response. You mean I have to, you know, render myself to God as His servant? You know, that's that's a that's a good that's a good point. And I wish people would take take what you said very seriously and reconsider this blind submission view, the divine right uh, of kings, as you mentioned. Well, let's let's talk quarantine a little bit. You and I agree with. Uh, with each other, which is really fun. Uh, you and I agree about Leviticus 13 and 14 and this scaly skin dis-ease commonly yet erroneously translated as leprosy, the Sara'ath in Hebrew. Explain why this isn't, because everything we've said up to this point has led us to this moment, because people believe that that's about biological contagion and health, and so quarantine, obviously that's the, that's the passage we have to go to. So why is that not the case? Why is it not biological contagion and, and an issue of health? In Tyrants Are Not Ministers of God, I carefully examined three passages people have used to justify medical quarantine. Uh, Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, Numbers uh, chapter 5, the first four verses, and Numbers 31. And uh, I examined each one of those in depth and then citing a plethora of academic scholars in the process. And then I drew six conclusions from those three passages that are sometimes uh, people think refer to medical quarantine. Now, I would like to go ahead and share these six conclusions from those three passages. Uh, the first conclusion is these passages are inseparable from the ceremonial law with its ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness, Levitical priesthood, and atoning animal sacrifices. That's the first conclusion. The second is simply that uh, in the bigger picture of the entire ceremonial law, it's virtually impossible to consistently hold the view 
the ceremonial law had a health or medical purpose. Since Christ and the apostles nullified the ceremonial food laws and circumcision for Gentiles, why would God in the new and better covenant be far less concerned about the health of his covenant people? Additionally, why were other harmful animals and vegetables not prohibited in the law? So that's the second uh, conclusion. A third conclusion is the Hebrew term you just referred to that's translated leprosy in most English Bibles uh, when applied to people. Uh, it denotes a ritually defiling skin disease. Leviticus 13 probably lists symptoms of, one scholar says, at least 21 different such diseases. But when applied to objects, uh, for example, a fabric or leather goods or house walls, the same Hebrew term in these chapters denotes mold or mildew, or it could even be rot and things like that. But uh, mold or mildew are not diseases that can be communicated to people as skin diseases. So again, that's another line of evidence in the matter of the conclusion I gave regarding these passages. It's very important. Now, the fourth one, and I'll spend just a little bit more time on these passages are concerned with uh, ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness, not with medical quarantine. To demonstrate that, I went through seven different uh, lines of evidence, and I'll just summarize each one of those seven in a sentence or so. But first of all, consider the context. Leviticus 13 and 14 is part of a larger unit dealing with ceremonial uncleanness generally. That is chapters 11 through 15. In fact, uh, Leviticus 11 through 15 is the most concentrated part of ritual purity laws found in the entire Pentateuch. So that's one line of evidence. Uh, the second line of evidence here is that the dominant theme of Leviticus 13 and 14 is ceremonial uh, cleanness or uncleanness. That's showed by the very terminology. The terms, uh, either clean, clean or unclean, those terms occur 66 times in those two chapters. That that clearly is the theme they're talking about. It's The theme is not disease at all. Another line of evidence is that the Levitical priest was summoned to make a judicial ruling of clean or unclean. He made no attempt to diagnose which skin disease an infected person might have or to prescribe any medical treatment for curing this condition. Another line of evidence, most skin diseases are not contagious. Some moderate skin diseases that meet the criteria given in Leviticus 13 are not contagious, such as psoriasis. Other serious diseases that are highly contagious even diseases that were known in the ancient Near East did not require quarantine in these passages. Another line of evidence, according to modern dermatologists and leprologists, the quarantine period of 7 to 14 days is not effectual treatment uh, for any known skin disease. Another line of evidence being healed of one's disease did still not render an affected person clean. He can only become clean after performing an elaborate, atoning, ritual, animal sacrifices, and then being pronounced clean by a Levitical priest. These atoning animal sacrifices were an integral, integral part of the ceremonial law that preached the gospel in pictures. And then one final line of evidence, or seventh, is that with regard to that Hebrew term that's translated mold or mildew when it's inside one's house, that when objects in your house, like furniture or something, when these objects were removed from the house, immediately prior to the priest, uh, to the Levitical priest, judicial ruling of the house being unclean, uh, these objects then were 
not considered unclean at all, that had just been in the house, that were just removed. The modern concept of biological germs, bacteria on the physical objects that were removed was not a consideration at all. Since God, who gave these laws to Moses, had comprehensive knowledge of how diseases were spread, quarantining to spread to prevent the spread of infection from person to person was not what the passage was about at all. So again, these seven lines of evidence clearly demonstrate this fourth conclusion that these passages are concerned with ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness. They're not concerned with medical quarantine. Well, the fifth conclusion I draw from those three passages is that uh, the reason explicitly stated in these texts why unclean persons or objects could not be could not remain among God's covenant people was that God's physical dwelling place on earth was in their midst. That is the tabernacle in the wilderness and the war camp when engaging in genocidal holy war to conquer the land of Canaan. The dwelling place of God's glorious manifest presence on earth was holy and must not be defiled by ceremonial uncleanness. Thus, quarantining in these passages was to protect God's sanctuary from defilement, the profaning of which likely result in an outbreak of God's holy wrath against the offenders. In other words, in these passages, quarantine had more to do with separating unclean people from the presence of God than from quarantining sick people from healthy people. And, of course, it's also helpful for us to remember that Ritual ceremonial cleanness was caused by many things besides uh, certain sin, uh, skin diseases, even normal things that are not sinful at all, such as sexual relations with one's spouse, a wife having a baby, or a woman having her menstrual period. So ceremonial cleanness dealt with many, many other things. And the sixth and final conclusion I offered from those passages is that no rule is assigned to the civil magistrates in these passages. It's very important. And there are no civil penalties listed at all. Well, consequently, these six conclusions show that it's poor hermeneutics to use Leviticus 13 and 14, Numbers 5, the first four verses, and Numbers 31 to justify contemporary medical quarantines by civil magistrates. Well, Jason, again, my answer to your question is somewhat technical. But it's so important to be accurate and thorough in our handling of these passages that some Christians are using to justify contemporary state-mandated medical quarantine for healthy people. Yeah, and to all of that, I say amen, because I, when I dug into that passage, too, I'm looking around thinking, well, there's a lot of assumptions being made about this section of Scripture, <laughs> especially the Numbers 5 section, where you have people who touch uh, maybe uh, contact with the dead or... Uh, someone who may have had a seminal discharge or something, You're, we're putting them all outside the quote unquote outside the camp to not social distance if it's a health thing, which is kind of interesting. But you're right, the, the main point of all of that was to get uncleanness, that is uh, sinful degradation, so to speak, out of the camp away from the presence of God because there was there were layers to that. Obviously, the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle and then the tabernacle complex complex itself and the way God stationed certain people around the tabernacle. And uh, there was just, there's, there's so much there and it's rich. And, and I really uh, love how you go into that and explain why we're not dealing with biological contagion. Uh, it's not about health. Uh, if it's about health, it's a, the spiritual health of the people. 
because the one guy who was covered head to toe with this white scaly ash like uh, issue, he's told to go back into the camp. <laughs> yes. He, right. he looks as awful as anybody could look and they're sending him back. So talk about a symptomatic person. Um, it, it, it's just erroneous to conclude that this teaches anything about modern day quarantine. And, and that's what I want to go next is what would you say to someone who says that the civil magistrate does have the power to quarantine? Because you observed and I've observed this too. That, that, that this judicial judgment is not a civil judicial judgment. It's a moral, it's an ethical, it's a religious judicial judgment that the priest was supposed to make. So people say, well, no, this is what it teaches. The magistrate has the power. You know, is there even anywhere in the scripture that someone could point to to support that belief? Well, I would first point out that the burden of proof is on the person making the claim that the civil magistrate has the God-ordained authority to impose medical quarantine, including upon the healthy. So the burden of proof is on them. But I would argue in response to somebody suggesting this, that first of all, there's no scripture assigning the realm of medical quarantine to the state. Again, very simple point, very important. Yeah. Second, in biblical law, there are no civil penalties for violating civil government quarantine laws. Since there are no civil penalties, quarantine is not an issue involving civil crime. And then a third uh, response I would give is that reform teaching regarding the regulative principle of government is valid. That principle states that the, st the uh, state is only authorized to do what God has specifically granted it the authority to do within its God-ordained jurisdiction. And uh, parenthetically, I would add the same ju uh, jurisdictional limitation would apply to the church. Mm -hmm. But you ask which passages a person might cite to defend quarantine laws. I've already demonstrated that the three passages that some have tried to interpret as involving medical quarantine teach no such thing. Uh, that only leaves general exhortations to be respectful and submissive to civil magistrates, such as Romans 13 and other passages I won't take time to mention. However, right. being re respect, respectful and submissive are not identical to obeying. They're totally different. Furthermore, we may distinguish between honoring the office of a civil magistrate versus showing honor to those civil magistrates who are misusing their office to promote evil. Honor for the office sometimes requires rebuking a civil magistrate who is misusing his or her office. And again, so many biblical examples of that. Consider uh, the Old Testament prophets. You know, they were forever rebuking kings for what they were doing. Uh, consider Jesus castigating the leaders of his time in Matthew 23, 13 to 38 and other places. I mean, why did he call Herod a female fox, a vixen? He was teaching something there. Many other passages we could list. But, but even the, the uh, cases that mention, uh, actually, Jesus uh, told the disciples to do this, but the uh, cases of the uh, prophetic curse of shaking off the dust uh, off of one's feet and or clothing when leaving a town that repudiated the gospel of the kingdom. And that curse fell upon all the magistrates, including, of course, I'm sorry, pardon, all the residents there of that uh, town, but that included the civil magistrates of that town. But a uh, number of passages refer to uh, that practice, to that uh, prophetic curse that was then applied. And I'd like to just mention uh, you know, an example in church history. John Knox was such a marvelous example of prophetically rebuking 
lawless tyrants. And I just really admire him. I think we need to get back to his writings much more than we have. Well, for our listeners, I hope you caught that because the question was, are there any scriptures that you could use to support this belief that the magistrate has the authority to quarantine? The answer is no. (laughs) The answer is no. In fact, the the scriptures that are used, Leviticus 13, 14, uh, Numbers 4, I think the other one later in Numbers as well, but those passages are not about medical quarantine. And uh, boy, if we could shout that from the rooftops, that would be that would be fantastic. Because I'm pretty sure you would agree that uh, we're not we're not probably going to see the end of this. Shanghai's back on lockdown. I don't know what they'll do here in the U.S. Um, the U.S. has a lot of guns, so they might think twice. But it's it's something that probably will rear its ugly head again because now we have set a precedent, unfortunately. So the church needs to get this right now. Toward the end of your book, I really enjoyed your observations about the Ten Commandments. I just preached through that last year. The Ten Commandments, and you had this observation that basically every policy that was enacted during the lockdowns was a violation of each commandment to some degree or another. But that said, you wrote about uh, nine principles for the church moving forward, and you don't have to necessarily go into super detail on those, but because I, I don't want you to give away everything, people need to go buy your book. But <laughs> help us understand what those are. What are those principles? What do you think the church needs to do today more than ever before regarding this topic? Yeah, maybe just before I answer that, I can mention one other thing in the book there. I wrote an appendix in there where I went through the attributes of God, listing what they were from normal systematic theology books, and then demonstrated examples of the state here in in America usurping almost every one of the attributes of God. And that's something pastors must get a hold on. Yeah, and that's a great. If we're not we're not preaching against idolatry, including this idolatry of statism, where the state usurps the attributes of God for itself, if we don't do that, what good is the church? We don't care yeah. about idolatry. Yep, amen. So, but as far as what does the church need to do? Well, some of the pl- things I wrote a year and a half ago when I wrote this part was, churches need, uh, first of all, churches do not need and should not seek permission from the civil government to do what the one and only head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, has commissioned her to do. Jesus, the Messiah is Lord, Caesar is not. The second principle I gave was that it's not possible for the church to fully obey the commandments of our Lord Jesus Christ without meeting together. And this is something I don't think has been dealt with as well as it should be. I'll give uh, four or five examples here. Partaking of the means of grace, that's somewhat obvious. Uh, certainly uh, include the teaching of the word and the uh, sacraments with baptism and Lord's Supper. It also includes, I think, other things such as corporate praise and worship, which included singing that was prohibited in the state of California, I believe. Right. Yeah. Uh, corporate prayer, Christian fellowship, all members of the body of Christ exercising gifts of the Spirit for the edification of the body. Passages that talk like First uh, Corinthians 12, chapter 14, Romans 12, other passages. Again, that's not done over Zoom. Uh, and again, other things like all the passages in the epistles, well, actually in the whole Bible, but particularly epistles that talk about let us or that are exhorting one another to do something. And then the phrases that use the phrase one another to describe the relationships in the body of Christ. And many of these are commands. And many of them are not obeyed when the church doesn't meet together. They just tries to meet over Zoom or something. So we're disobeying a lot of commands. We don't stop and think through uh in this, in that area. Another example is personal ministry to individuals, such as words of encouragement and exhortation or wise counsel or anointing with oil, laying on of hands. These sort of things take person to person contact. 
uh, ministry of the sick uh, pervasively, which you know, we see in James 5, we see it pervasively throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts. But another area that I haven't seen anybody talking about is uh, the expression of Christian physical affection. Many verses on that. And then some of them are imperatives in the epistles of Paul to show Christian physical affection. Again, you can't do that over Zoom. Mm-hmm. So it's we're disobeying many commands of Scripture that we don't think much about when we don't meet together. So that we need to think through this much better than we have. So that's the second principle. Third, that uh, church leaders must recognize how this has really been an attack on Christ and his kingdom and the church, and as a result, prayerfully strategize accordingly. What are we going to do to combat this just in a strategic way? I'm just again hitting these very superficially on some of this, but fourth, church leaders, as well as seminary professors and ministry leaders, have a God-given responsibility to teach a bunch of biblical principles here. And I'm thinking of Jesus Christ's lordship, his sovereign reign over everything, principles like the proper jurisdictions of family, church, and state, the legitimate role and the limits of civil governments with warnings against an idolatrous state, and civil disobedience. Proper understanding of Romans 13. Church leaders must teach these things. Uh, for example, pastors ought to be teaching their fa- fathers in their congregation that the fathers do not need permission from the civil government to do what God the Father has commissioned them to do, such as work to provide for their family, protect their family, educate their children, and so forth. And you need to keep in mind something that I believe R.J. Rushton pointed out. What is the jurisdiction of the family? Well, that includes marriage and child raising, property ownership business ownership, inheritance, education, and welfare. That all falls under the jurisdiction of family in the scriptures. Such rights do not derive from any human government. Family derives from God the Father. Civil government neither defines the family nor is Lord over the family. And, of course, fathers and, of course, church elders as well. But that we have a God-given responsibility to protect our God-given jurisdictions. Otherwise, we won't have any jurisdiction after a while. So with a, a fifth principle I went through was that, that regarding church elders and pastors, that uh, if they have a biblical concern over these issues, they're understanding some of these things, that they need to act and, and do something about it. For example, first of all, commit to personally obeying God rather than men in these issues, being God's prophetic voice in their community, even if nobody joins them. Yes. But also, we need to work and pray to educate, educate and recruit other Bible-believing pastors would be willing to stand with them in opposing sinful tyr- state tyranny. Consider mobilizing other co-belligerents. Uh, educate Christian magistrates on their God-given responsibilities, including interposition against tyrants. Uh, again, that book by Matthew Trello is extremely helpful on that. Uh, pray inventory prayers, individually, as families, at churches, against demonized, specific demonized tyrants, uh, tyrannical civil magistrates, who are persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. Uh, and we do that to bring down the arrogance of tyrants, to quote from Isaiah 13, 11. Well, sixth principle is the church does not have to all meet together in one centralized building. It can meet in houses and other buildings, caves, whatever. A church that's highly centralized is more easily controlled by the state. Biblical church must not be building dependent. The early church did not have its own buildings. The early church was often an underground church, met primarily in homes until the 4th century. And very few of these Christians were wealthy with large houses. But it certainly didn't hurt their church growth. 
Same is true for many churches in China today. It was true with the former Soviet Union. Such communist countries, the true church of Jesus Christ is the underground church. The compromised church is the state-licensed church that meets openly but is regulated by the state and infiltrated by government spies. And of course, contemporary Christians must also meet secretly in many, many Muslim countries. Seventh principle, in opposition to, uh, if opposition to new locality is particularly strong, you should consider stewarding resources that God has given you and, and providing for your family accordingly. And this is something I haven't heard hardly Christian leaders talk about, but I'm thinking of things like storing up some money and precious metals outside the country in which you live, perhaps owned by a foreign LLC or foreign corporation that you form or in control. Uh, taking, we can also take advantage of greater legal protections afforded in our own country, things like uh, having your own home or other property uh, investments owned by an LLC or a corporation that you form or control rather than personally owning them. You don't have to legally own property or possessions to control and use them. Obviously, like a, a trust or something yeah. like that. Yeah. 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 But, uh, obviously, laws and legal protections vary by country. and But lawlessness and civil magistrates acting as tyrants have occurred across the world and throughout church history. So seek out wise legal counsel on this matter. And an eighth principle that, again, is not being talked about much at all, and it's especially in Reformed circles, and it should be, cultivate a sensitivity of the Holy Spirit and be led by him. Biblical Christianity always combines God's written word, which is inspired and illumined by the Holy Spirit, and the supernatural empowerment and leading of the Holy Spirit. As vital as Bible study is, it can't replace the dynamic of the supernatural leading of God, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christians must ask themselves, into which battles is the Holy Spirit calling us to fight now and with what strategies? And then the last uh, basic principle I gave for the churches of what we need to be doing now is in situations where God has brought a lot of covenantal judgment on people in certain areas by enslaving them by the tyrannical government, how does the church respond? Well, first and foremost, respond by repentance, including repentance for failing to be God's prophetic voice in the culture, and failing to apply the scripture to all of life and so forth, but also then casting ourselves on the mercy of God. Then praying impetuary prayers. I've got a booklet on that. So it's very, very important. Uh, it's been used by churches all over the country and other countries as well. Very, very important to do that. Have a seminar in your churches on impetuary prayers and teach the people about it. Can't emphasize that enough. That's when the Iron Curtain fell in Eastern Europe, when the church finally began to pray impetuary prayers. Yeah. The church in China has refused, to, by and large, to pray impetuary prayers, and communism still rules the country. We've got to use the nuclear weapons of spiritually that God, that is, that God has given us in inventory prayers. So it's very important. And uh, let's see what else there. And just uh, with the Holy Spirit's leading, strategically choose which battles to fight at, at this time, when to engage in them, all the while working toward the goal laid out in the comprehensive biblical blueprints for all of culture being submitted to King Jesus. Then your last part of your question was, uh, what does the church need to do now more than ever before? I'd say very simply, yeah. uh, we need the biblical worldview constructed from the inerrant, sufficient word of God written, and then combine that with a supernatural empowering of the Holy Spirit, that is, word and spirit. In my experience, churches emphasize either the word or the spirit in their doctrine and in their practices, 
thereby polarizing and greatly weakening the body of Christ. I believe the 7th century Scottish Covenanters were rather successful in combining both word and spirit, particularly with such men as John Knox. Also, uh, men like George Wishart, Alexander Pedden, Ale John Welch, several others. May we emulate in such spirit-filled men of God in our day. Yes, amen, amen. Well, that's that. those are great principles, uh, Dr. Fugate. I think that that's something we can all learn something from, and I really appreciate your emphasis and your balanced perspective on word and spirit, and not just either or. At the end of the day, all of this stuff is about the battle of the totalitarians. It's going to be the totalitarian state, or it's going to be Christ and his kingdom. And uh, that's where all of this is going, and that's what makes it all very difficult. Well, I appreciate your time, Dr. Fugate. Thank you for carving it out. I, I have one final question. Uh, before I ask it, people can find your books at lordofthenations.com. Uh, you can reach out to me, uh, the Cross and Crown Radio page on Facebook. Either way, send me a message if you're wanting to get connected here. But I, this is just a, an interesting question because sometimes the books choose you. Like this book sort of chose you to write, I think, because of yes. the con context of what, what, what's what been going on for a couple of years now. But the last question is, like, what, what books do you hope to write in the future? Are there any topics specifically that you haven't really hammered out that you would like to, uh, goals in that regard? Maybe you have two or three that you uh, are thinking through right now. Well, I'm presently immersed in uh, writing a major work on the person, work, and gifts of the Holy Spirit, something I've studied for over 40 years. It's been always very, very important to me, but I've not written on. So that's the work I'm engaged in now. It's going to be probably well over 500 pages I'm estimating at this point. Wonderful. That, that's consuming most of my time right now. Uh, I've also considered, I've got quite a bit of material I've done in over the years in studying uh, the area of introduction to biblical healing. It's, again, something not taught a lot on, uh, especially in reform circles, but we can't even look at areas like uh, the name and nature of God, nature of covenant, the nature of the atonement, nature of the kingdom of God, many of these concepts without bringing in the area of healing. And so uh, I want to look some at that. Okay. Uh, another one that's quite different is looking at the kind of the subject of Israel, like who are God's people and where is God's land? Uh, the new, what about Israel and the new covenant? And I've uh, not a, I'm not a fan of Zionism, and, uh, but really writing about some of those things. Oh, and then wonderful. One, one final other yeah. topic I'll mention is I've considered writing on introduction to biblical economics, but uh, I may go less ambitiously than that. I may just, you know, something like uh, considering poverty, particularly the uh, biblical causes and the biblical solutions versus the uh, false solutions. Yeah. So those are some different topics. Again, very diverse, but applying the biblical worldview to all of life, holding fast to the unity of Scripture, applying all of Scripture to, to all of life, all of culture, to, to promote the lordship of King Jesus over everything. And again, besides lordofthenations.com website, uh, if you were trying to buy our paperback books, go to uh, thebookpatch.com. That, that is thebookpatch.com, and just search for my, my name, Robert. Fugate and you know, pull up books there that you can order. Yep, that's where I picked up. Tyrants are not ministers of God. What this, what the Bible teaches about civil disobedience, Romans thirteen and quarantine. So make sure you grab a copy. Thank you, Doctor Fugate, for your time and what a blessing, what a joy. Great book. Appreciate your ministry, and uh, hopefully uh, you and I can can stay in touch and uh, you know keep hammering out these issues. Lord willing, we want to pray for revival and reformation. And uh, this is part of how, how God uses it by teaching his word. So 
Again, thank you. And for our listeners, that's all for us this week. We'll have more interviews and such coming up in the next few weeks. But thank you for all, thank you all for listening and we'll catch you next time.